Hi there, and welcome to the Jeff MacArthur Podcast for Monday, November 2nd. Coming up, we'll talk about the challenges that restaurants are facing with outdoor dining as the cold winter weather begins to set in, plus Canada's small business concerns for the holiday shopping season, and as well, a big announcement by the province when it comes to long-term care. All of that coming up next on the pod right now. Well, as we know, restaurants continue to struggle during the second wave of the pandemic. And there's a really interesting challenge that has come from one restaurant in Ottawa. How about this? The owner has dared the premier and the mayor of Ottawa to work an eight-hour shift at an outdoor patio here during the cold winter months, just so they can, you know, get a feel for what hospitality owners and workers are being asked to do. Andrew Oliver is the CEO of Oliver and Bonaccini. He's also the co-founder of SaveHospitality.ca and joins us now here on Global News Radio. Andrew, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. So first of all, what do you think about this proposition out of Ottawa? Yeah, look, I think I think it. Um, I'm, I'm hoping it's a lot more symbolic than, than than actually hoping that we get the premier to do something like that, as opposed to um, you know other things that he could be doing that, that might make more sense. But I think I think the point is, look again, at minus ten, uh, the way I woke up in Toronto, you know, the point should be. Um, you know, tented patios with heaters are most certainly not a viable long-term solution for for the restaurant industry. Um, and given that the data seems to have been manipulated in a way to to force the premier to make a decision that that clearly um, uh, looks like was a mistake, um, that I'm very confident they're going to get us open sooner than later uh, for for indoor dining, albeit with with added restrictions. Yeah. Do you think the premier or the provincial uh, government and health officials, Andrew, do they understand with the cold weather settling in just how unsettling that is for businesses such as yours? Look, I I, I just saw Ford's um, press conference today, and I look, I do I do think his heart bleeds for for small business owners that are put in a very tough situation. Um, you know, at, at the same time, I think that he's in a rock and a hard place where. Um, you know, you want to listen to doctors and experts at the end of the day as to what is the right thing to do here. I think what's happened here, and I think there'll be a lot of time uh, w- once we get things a little bit more settled to go and say, look, what did happen here? Was it, did, did, the, did some of the doctors that are on the COVID file manipulate numbers that, that, that you know, ruin the lives of a lot of restaurateurs out there or not? But I think it's very challenging to have politicians be put in a situation where they're not going to be listening to experts. And, and maybe the solution here is maybe broadening um, the experts they need to talk to, and then also saying, look, uh, COVID is obviously a terrible thing, but the more and more that the, the government you know, is only now being honest with about the numbers, it does seem that this is limited to, to you know, for the most part, people with pre-existing conditions, or, or, or I, think, I think the statistics that Dr. Tam brought out was it was 70% of deaths were, were folks over 80 years old. You know, obviously that's, that's terribly sad and, and, and challenging, but maybe can now have us have a much more targeted approach to this crisis as opposed to this large paintbrush they've used uh, for eight months that's cost us tens of billions of dollars and, and clearly isn't working all that well. Yeah, let's talk a bit about those data points because uh, was it fair, do you think, to uh, kind of close uh, the majority of uh, restaurants when really only around 3% of cases were coming from those uh, restaurants? And I think we just heard in that press conference that we uh, aired here on Global News Radio, uh, someone quoted the fact that it was 27 restaurants that were responsible for some COVID outbreaks, and we've closed some 7,500 restaurants because of those. Yeah, look, I think, I think I'd like to believe all your listeners and any rational person would sit here and say, no, that clearly was something that, uh, uh, you know, some of the folks uh, manipulated the numbers or, or selectively shared numbers to try and get what they wanted as opposed to being honest 
uh, about it that most people would sit here and say, look, if 3% of cases are coming from one group, you shouldn't shut it down. Uh, let, let's be honest here. If every single industry or every single other place that had, had, was responsible for 3% or more uh, of transmission was shut down, we'd all be staying at home and, and, and never leaving our houses again. Now, uh, Mayor Tory has said that restrictions on some businesses will be on a continuing basis, even if we hear from the Ford government, the provincial government, sometime this week, that they will not extend modified uh, stage two. Andrew, what would uh, SaveHospitality.ca, what would they like to see happen when it comes to uh, restaurants over the next few weeks, months? Yeah, look, I think, I think we've become accustomed to the fact that there's going to be mask wearing, enhanced um, sanitary procedures. And I think that, look, at the end of the day, that's, that's not something that stops us from being open. It definitely limits how much we're open. And we need to ensure the federal government and provincial governments are providing aid so people aren't choosing between breaking the rules and bankruptcy. Um, but I think that at the end of the day, the, the, the city does need to do what they got to do to try and protect us. One of the things that, that I proposed uh, to Mayor Tory actually as, as early as last Friday and, 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 and trying to work with the Ford government on is, you know, we have tens of thousands of people, if not north of 100,000 people in this province, who are, who are being paid not to work. It makes no sense to me that we cannot hire the largest army of contract tracers uh, and, and adopt policies that have worked in other countries, whether they be Japan or South Korea, so that, you know, yes, it's great that we're going to be hopefully able to reopen as early as Friday, but in two months, I don't want to be in the same situation as France or the United Kingdom where we're forced to shut down. I think we need a government that's going to look two or three steps ahead to say, okay, great, we made a mistake in shutting you down. You weren't the problem now, but how do we stop ourselves from having to shut down the entire economy again, and what levers and tools do we have already? And I sit here and say, look, if you can manage a hostess book for reservations, you should be able to manage contract tracing. We've asked them to say, look, force every restaurant, to give them compensation to do it, to hire two full-time people. Um, and and uh, to, to be able to reopen and do contract tracing, you'd immediately put 15,000 people back to work in the province of Ontario or, or the city of Toronto um, and help fight the battle, not only in restaurants, but across the broader economy, I just think is a no-brainer. Yeah, I got less than a minute here, Andrew, but let me finish on this note and ask you this question. Is this the lifeline that the restaurant industry needs by the end of this week? They need the green light when it comes to in-house dining with these colder winter months uh, looming. If that isn't okay, that isn't green lit, uh, we are going to see a litany of restaurants go under. Oh, yeah, there, there's no question. You're already facing right now, you know, 65 to 75 percent will not make it through the winter uh, without either more aid, which is, is highly likely not coming from what we've heard. Um, Christian Freeland will be announcing tomorrow. If, if they allow us to reopen, you might save another, you know, 25 percent of the restaurants. So only 50 percent will fail. Um, look, it is impossible to manage your budget without sales and revenues. And if the government is the one shutting down your sales and revenues, you know, and then also not providing you any relief or meaningful relief on costs, it, it, it's just in the real world, budgets don't balance themselves. That's just not possible. So, look, allowing us to open um, um, with less aid than we had in the summer will allow some to survive for sure. You will, will, you will surely save some, but not all restaurants. Got to leave it there for now. Andrew, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks. Andrew Oliver is the CEO of Oliver and Bonaccini. There's uh, also concern for Canada's small business. As we head into the holiday shopping season, can they compete with big box stores and these big websites like Amazon? As obviously shoppers focus has turned to online shopping over the last seven, eight months and during the pandemic. Let's welcome in Deanne Brisebois. She is the uh, president of the Retail Council of Canada and joins us on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Dan, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good afternoon. 
Okay, uh, let's start with uh, where we are currently, if we can. Maybe a bit of a snapshot. Uh, have things got better, worse, or not much has changed for small business during the second wave of the pandemic uh, overall? Uh, not much has changed, and if it has, it um, it just continues to be more challenging. As you noted, a lot of consumers have moved to online shopping, so that makes it even more difficult. And then add to that many small businesses that don't have transactional website. So this is going to be a challenging time for them. Yeah, let's talk a bit about that, that they don't have these transactional uh, websites, because this is just not something that you can throw together in a day or uh, even a week and expect to you know compete with the likes of Amazon or Walmart. Uh, I mean, obviously, this takes a lot of planning and, quite frankly, uh, a lot of money at a time when small business might not have it yet. No, exactly. There are a lot of programs like Digital Main Street, for example, that do help small businesses get uh, digital as quickly as possible. There are platforms. Uh, there's, you know, you mentioned Walmart. There's a Walmart platform. There's Best Buy. There's Amazon. There's also Shopify and Lightspeed. So there are ways for smaller retailers to get online very quickly. But um, it's, you know, it's a challenge because they have to think about paying their rent, uh, trying to keep their staff, increasing their marketing so people know they're there, they're still open. So there are many challenges facing your small merchants right now. Yeah, and even if you can get up and running on one of these websites, that doesn't necessarily guarantee your success, I would think, because... You know, a lot of these, uh, you know, brands or companies like Amazon, they have spent literally, you know, the last few years, decade or so, really establishing their online footprint. Something like that takes time. It does. Because as you well pointed out, it's not just about it having an online presence and a website. It's about changing your marketing. Uh, it's about making sure that you have the contact information to reach out to those customers who usually come to your store, letting them know that you're open. But also, um, you know, new ways of trying to think about how you promote what you're selling because of people's changing lifestyles. So it's not it's not that simple. There's no question that this is a great challenge for many of our small merchants. And doesn't this run kind of uh, opposite to what a lot of these small businesses and merchants have built their reputations and their business on, which is knowing their customer, that face-to-face interaction. A lot of these businesses, again, that's their reputation, and all of that all of a sudden has been lost when you moved online. Yes, so losing the foot traffic is uh, is probably the biggest challenge. But I have to say that uh, having worked with a lot of our small merchants around the country, many of them have gotten uh, so much better at using social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, and the like to ensure that they're, you know, front and center to the customers. But yes, most small businesses are well known for product knowledge, personalized service. The key now is to try to move that message on social media and online. How critical is it to the holiday shopping season? We know it's always a critical, but even more so, I would think, here in 2020 and for small business. I mean, depending how much some merchants and small businesses sell in the coming weeks, is that going to decide whether or not they move into 2021 and beyond? 
Yes, it will, because for many retailers, uh, big and small, but here specifically for a small retailer, the holiday season often represents a third of their business. So we're talking about a month to month and a half representing as much as what they would make in six to ten months. So this is key. And the other um, thing that many of our small merchants face is if they don't get the sales, they just don't have the cash flow to survive first quarter of 2021. So this will be critical. We're telling everyone, shop early, support local, uh, shop in your neighborhood, uh, think about who needs it most. That will be critical for the holiday season. And, you know, you would think that most people want to obviously support their uh, friends and neighbors and their business and their families. But having said that, uh, what does your research tell you, Deanne, when it comes to the psyche of the consumer right now going into this uh, holiday season? Is there still a concern regarding personal safety going into shops, going into a mall? And is that the major impediment uh, when it comes to shopping local for the holiday season? Well, it's interesting because all the surveys we've done show three things now. One is value, the other one is convenience, and the third one is health and safety. When we did those surveys in the past, that would never show up in their top five, and in fact, in some cases, top ten. There's no question it's on their mind, but they are going out. They are shopping. We've seen traffic pick up in the mall. Again, it's a question of making sure that merchants show that they're following protocols and they're keeping their employees and their customers safe. That will be critical. What is your belief when it comes to uh, online shopping and what's gone on the last six or seven months? Because obviously with the pandemic, a lot of people have uh, opted for uh, online, and there was a time when that's all there was. Uh, There was, you know pretty much every region in the country was under lockdown early on in the uh, pandemic. But are we witnessing, do you think, and seeing a fundamental switch when it comes to consumers and how they purchase and how they buy? Yeah, it is the perfect way of, uh, of saying it. It is fundamental shift. We don't believe that customers will change those habits drastically. In less than four months, we've seen the volume and the growth in online shopping that we thought we would see in two to three years. So it's been like a tsunami. And customers feel better, feel more comfortable. And we've seen that even with older customers who were usually not online and they're doing their shopping online. So it will not replace brick and mortar, but it represents nearly a, twice as much uh, in volume as it did last year. So it will continue to be important for customers as they get more and more comfortable with the experience. And when we talk about a fundamental switch, are we also going to see a fundamental switch when it comes to downtowns and what they look like in the short term and in the long term? I mean, as we see more and more restaurants close, I know here in downtown Toronto, it feels as if, and we've talked about this on several occasions over the last few months, like the very fabric of the downtown and of certain neighborhoods is changing. And is that something that... uh, we're just not going to get back. Is that family-owned business or a restaurant, which really adds to the vibrancy of a downtown or a neighborhood? That's probably the most worrisome when we look at the change in life, the change in lifestyle we've seen. The towers still reporting between 10 to 20 percent vacancy, which means that if you're a small business and you rely on that foot traffic, on people going to work 
walking around at lunch. Think of the of the underground path, and you barely see anybody in in that area. And if you're a small business relying on that location, that will be extremely difficult to survive. And so the downtown areas in the major cities were basically, you know, under review because they they no longer will play the same role they did specifically for retail and restaurants. Just finally, Deanne, what is the Retail Council of Canada? What are they forecasting when it comes to the holiday shopping season? Because I think it can go one of uh, two ways. It's going to be a fantastic that there's this pent-up demand that a lot of people haven't been able to go on vacations. They might have a little more disposable uh, income, and they feel as if uh, their family's been through a lot this year, so let's have a great holiday, a great Christmas. Or they might be a little trepidatious when it comes to the future and be holding a little tighter to their uh, wallets, uh, uncertain about the uh, future. Do you have a sense there at the Retail Council of Canada which way the holiday shopping season is going to go? Yes, in fact, we're just going to be releasing a survey of over 2,000 consumers, and it does show that there is some trepidation. But as you noted, because they are not spending their discretionary dollars on travel and related activities, we believe that will be extremely helpful to our retailers. We suspect that we are not going to see growth uh, year over year. And I think most retailers are hoping to do as well. Uh, but there's no question that uh, the consumers are telling us they're going to be a bit more careful. What we are seeing is a big trend around self-gifting, people buying themselves things for the holiday season to make them feel uh, better. So. We're obviously crossing your fingers and hoping that it is as decent as it was last year. Well, a lot of small businesses depending on it, for sure. Deanne, really appreciate the uh, time, as always, and the uh, perspective. Thanks so much for joining us. It's nice talking to you again. Thank you. Deanne Brisebois is the president of the Retail Council of Canada. Well, big announcement from the province when it comes to long-term care in the province. The government promising long-term care residents four hours of care per day. Here's the premier just last hour. To our residents and to their families and caregivers, four hours a day will make a world of difference. Across the sector, that means tens of thousands of additional hours of care for our residents. This is the gold standard in the long-term care sector, and we won't settle for anything less. All right, Dr. Ahmed Arya is a palliative care physician who specializes in long-term care and joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Dr. Arya, nice to have you back on. Yeah, good afternoon, Jeff. All right, the Premier, you just heard there, calls today's announcement the gold standard. Would you agree? Well, absolutely, but of course there's some caveats to this. I mean, uh, for years, I mean, advocates, you know, researchers, experts, um, unions and, you know, who represent frontline health workers and family caregivers have been asking for 4.1 hours of direct hands-on care to be available for each resident. And just to give the listener an idea, uh, before the pandemic, the average was around 2.77, and it has undoubtedly, of course, dropped with the staffing shortages um, that have happened subsequently. Well, I wanted to ask you about that, because can we meet this target? Can we meet this commitment considering those staffing uh, shortages? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's actually uh, very critical that we do everything we can as soon as possible. Four years is far too long when our seniors are being neglected today. I mean, when we have situations in long-term care facilities, 
where, I mean, someone's parent or grandparent has to be in a diaper because there's not enough staff to take them to the bathroom on time. There's not enough staff to make sure that they don't go hungry and they're fed properly. Or, you know, obviously for many of the seniors in long-term care facilities who spend most of their day in a wheelchair or in bed, I mean, there's not enough staff to bathe them regularly. I mean, that's appalling. And we should be doing all we can as soon as possible to solve this issue. Okay, but as staffing levels are currently, are you confident that we can meet this four-hour duty of care, uh, if you will? Because uh, obviously that's up from the 2.7, as you just mentioned. So each worker will be spending longer with uh, each resident, and there's only so many workers to go around per resident. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So to reiterate, 2.77 was before the pandemic, and there are, like, the shortages have become even worse because PSWs, who are the critical sort of frontline health workers, or the most critical frontline health workers in these facilities, um, have left the profession in droves because they're not paid well and they have poor working conditions. I mean, we're hearing of... uh, you know, shortages of PSWs or the uh, uh, the level of PSWs that are available in long-term care homes at uh, less at at, 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 um, at a decrease of 30% with the pandemic. So it needs an investment, and it needs the government to do everything they can in their power uh, with all the resources they have to solve this issue urgently, not four years from now. All right, and will money simply just fix this problem, paying PSWs uh, better, offering them more, or do we need to do more? Do we have a recruitment problem, do you think, in our long-term care homes? Oh, absolutely. So money is part of it. You're very right. I mean, all frontline health workers, whether it's nurses or PSWs in long-term care homes, need to be paid a decent living wage. I mean, they need to receive paid sick leave. They need to be working full-time in one long-term care facility. Um, the other thing is, is that they need to, um, you know, have better working conditions where we make sure that they have a reasonable volume of patients. I mean, right now, as a nurse in a long-term care facility, you, you may be shocked to hear that you may be looking after 30 residents in the day or 60 at night. And if you have a colleague that calls in sick, well, you just have to make do and the residents would have to make do. And that, you know, obviously can't add up to job satisfaction and it can't add up to proper care. Yeah. I guess my next question for you, doctor, would be uh, why now or is it uh, under better late than uh, never? A lot of people feel as if uh, this sort of duty of care should have uh, been standardized long ago, long before the pandemic, or at the very least after what we saw uh, with the first wave. So, again, is this better late than never? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I think for people who have lived through the system, whether it's families that have uh, lost loved ones during the pandemic or even before, or residents that are even currently in the system, I mean, it's it's, it's far too late, actually, in many circumstances, very tragically. And we know that even in wave one, from the reports that came out from the military, that there were heartbreaking reports of, you know, a neglect and abandonment, people dying from dehydration and hunger. So unions and experts and advocates, once again, have been calling for this 4.1 hours of direct hands-on care per resident to be delivered for years. I mean, in 2018, there was sort of a challenge that came out on social media, which spoke to how an average PSW in a nursing home has six minutes to get a senior off and get them ready for breakfast. And I ask all of our listeners, and we can ask ourselves, Jeff, I mean, it definitely takes us longer than six minutes to, you know, to get ready in the morning. So how do we expect that's reasonable for, you know, a PSW working in a nursing home? Yeah, I was going to say, I can't get myself up and out of bed in six minutes and uh, get to breakfast, uh, never mind trying to help one of our uh, elderly, for sure. 
Uh, last week, we were talking to a doctor with the provincial NDP about their time to care private members bill. Not sure how familiar familiar you are uh, with that, but they've been asking the government to fast track that. It asks for a lot more than just uh, four hours, but that is one of the things that we're calling for, four hours uh, per resident. Is what we heard from the provincial government today, is it just really kind of scratching the surface? Do we need more? Do we need to do more? Well, I mean, we need to know details of what the government is promising, and we need to change the time frame. I mean, once again, four, four years is too late when the neglect and, and, and abandonment continues to happen today. I mean, what, what the official opposition, the NDP, proposed was the Time to Care Act, which would be an amendment of the Long-Term Care Homes Act in Ontario and would make sure that each operator would be responsible for providing those 4.1 hours at a minimum for each resident, which is absolutely what is required. I will point out that the government's announcement today calls for an average of 4.1 hours, which is different than a minimum standard of 4.1. And like any other piece of legislation or announcement, I mean, this needs to have a timeline, this needs to have funding, and it needs to be enforceable. So we know that when homes cannot meet these staffing requirements, there is a harsh penalty and everything is done to protect the health and safety of of our vulnerable seniors who live in these homes. I'm glad you mentioned that, Doctor, and that was something that I believe the long-term care minister, Dr. Mary Lee Fullerton, outlined in the press conference uh, last hour that there will be uh, targets. In other words, there's going to be measurables uh, here, and that's uh, great. But as we well know, inspections were uh, cut back. A lot of times it was just uh, done uh, over the phone. There were no real repercussions when targets weren't met. you got to have some teeth in this, right, to make sure that uh, it's followed through on. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you're very right that inspections were cut back and they were over the telephone. I mean, the inspections were also rolled back even before the pandemic to becoming more of a complaints-based system rather than a yearly um, sort of inspection for each long-term care home proactively. And, I mean, really, we have to understand, once again, these inspections have to have teeth to them. I mean, we're, you know, Orchard Villa, which was in the media due to multiple failures uh, during the pandemic, and it was one of the homes where the military went in, had over 100 complaints in just a few years before the pandemic happened. Um, and, uh, you know, Extended Care Weston Villa is another home in Ottawa, which had, uh, you know, a huge outbreak just recently during the second wave, over 100 residents affected, and they had inspectors on the ground in July. So once again, if the, inspe- if the inspections can't do anything, which is almost generally the case that homes just have to sort of submit a voluntary plan of remediation, then what's the point? I mean, they need to even take away the license of these homes and do everything they can to once again protect the health and safety of, the, of, of, of vulnerable seniors. Just finally, Dr. Arya, we know, of course, that uh, private long-term care homes were disproportionately affected during the first wave of the pandemic. pandemic. And there's been lots of talk uh, recently about uh, private versus public. Uh, Once again, we've seen the government have to go in and take over a few of these private long-term care facilities because of problems and outbreaks. Is that something that needs to be addressed as well? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, here in Canada, we often pride ourselves as having, you know, sort of universal health care. We think that we have universal health care and we think of that almost as a Canadian value. But actually, when we look at our vulnerable seniors, we have a two-tier health system where, I mean, we knew even before the pandemic that for-profit nursing homes offered an inferior quality of care when it came to municipal or not-for-profit homes. And that shouldn't surprise us, actually, because these homes, they siphon out money to their corporate shareholders um, and they siphon it away from the front lines where it's needed. They have less staff on site and they pay their staff, um, you know, less. And that gap 
has been sort of cruelly and dangerously exposed during during the pandemic so far, whereas you rightfully pointed out, I mean, um, for-profit nursing homes had far um, worse outcomes when it came to COVID-19. So we need to get profits out of, out of the care of our most vulnerable seniors as soon as we can. All right, Dr. Arya, appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you, Jeff. Be well. Dr. Ahmed Arya is a palliative care physician who specializes in long-term care. And just a reminder that you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 1 till 3 Eastern. Just tune in at 640toronto.com. Also, find us on Spotify, search my name, Jeff MacArthur, or download us wherever you find your favorite podcasts.